Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. The term rotten prod, short for rotten Protestant, sounds like a sectarian slur. However, it's a phrase with a complicated and fascinating history. It actually originated within the Protestant community in Ulster to describe a person who was considered disloyal to unionism. At the turn of the 20th century, the majority of Ulster Protestants were Unionists, meaning they supported Ireland's place within the United Kingdom. However, a now forgotten minority, many of whom were Protestant working class socialists, rejected this view, believing a united Ireland of one kind or another was better for workers. This left them alienated from their Protestant neighbours and co-workers and led them to be labelled rotten prods. They not only faced vilification, but also violence within their own communities. And in this podcast, I interview Emmett O'Connor, a historian in the University of Ulster and author of the book Rotten Prod, The Unlikely Career of Dungaree Baird. The book follows the fascinating story of James Baird, one of the most famous people dubbed a rotten prod in the early decades of the 20th century. His remarkable story that of a man who stood against the tide, takes place in a violent, sectarian world that was early 20th century Belfast. Now before we begin, I'll get the formalities out of the way. My name is Finn DeWire and this is the Irish History Podcast. If you're a first time listener, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it now. I also have two announcements that you'll be interested in. Firstly, my book, A Lethal Legacy, A History of Ireland in 18 Murders, is now available for pre-order. The book explores the history of Ireland over the last two centuries through the lens of 18 murders, most of which you will never have encountered before. Now, I can't wait for you to read the book. As I mentioned last week, it was very much written with you, the listeners of the show, in mind. Now, while the book hits the shelves on September the 14th, you can pre-order it today, and I have three great reasons why you might want to do this. So firstly, you get a 10% discount when you pre-order at Eason's.com and use the coupon code FD10. That's FD10. I've links to that in the show notes below. 
The second reason for pre-ordering is that the book will be delivered to you on the day it's released. And finally, the third reason is that pre-orders really have built the profile of the book, so you'd be helping me out too. Sound on today's show was by Kate Dunley. Now to the story of James Baird with Emmett O'Connor. Now before we begin, I will say the book is totally worth reading. We could only cover part of James Baird's life in this interview. I have a link to that as well in the show notes below. It's called Rotten Prod, The Unlikely Career of Dungaree Baird. Really worth checking out. But let's get on with the interview. To begin, I asked Emmett to explain the term rotten prod. The history and origins of this term help understand and frame James Baird's life. So the term rotten prod was applied loosely to almost any Protestant who wasn't a unionist in in Ulster in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I mean, it, it was used by them as a derogatory term. It wasn't used as by, by others as a derogatory term, but, but Protestants. But it was used by Protestants to describe, you know, people who weren't sound on the constitutional question as, as they saw it. We then moved on to James Baird's early years. As the son of a small tenant farmer, details about his upbringing in the late 19th century are scant, as Emmett now explains. He was born in Ahar, well, near Ahar in uh, South Tyrone, 1871. His, his father was a tenant farmer with about 10 acres of land. And uh, when he registered James's birth, he, he marked the birth certificate with an X. So he would have been illiterate as well. But his father died about a year after James was born. And it seems that um, James was raised mainly with his uh, grandparents. His mother re- remarried. Information on the, you know, his, his early biography is not, it, it's a bit limited, a bit sparse. James would move to Belfast in the 1890s, and before we follow him there, I asked Emmett to set the scene for you, what Belfast was like at this time. As he now explains, the city was changing rapidly in the late 19th century. Yeah, Belfast was transformed in the 19th century. You know, in 1800, it was a relatively smallish cotton town, and it had a population of about 20,000, and it was sometimes called the Athens of the North. It had a, it had a reputation been a very cultured and indeed politically radical place and of course it was where the United Irishmen were formed but uh, the industrialization transformed it. it it shifted from cotton to linen and then of course you had the growth of engineering and then shipbuilding so you know just before World War One it's just about the biggest city in Ireland it's by far the most industrialized city in Ireland and from the 1830s it starts to acquire this notorious reputation for sectarian divisions it had been an overwhelmingly Protestant and Presbyterian town before that. But with industrialization, you get a lot of Catholics moving into Belfast and settling around the, the Falls Road in the west of the city. And of course, you get that, you know, uh, that sort of four quatrain division of Belfast, which is still there today. And that the, the east is where it's mainly Protestants, where the heavy industry is. You've got less well-paid jobs in the west, catering for both. Catholics along the Falls Road and Protestants in the Sandy Row and Shankill area. South Belfast is the middle class area. And the north then was the last part of the city to be built. Now key to James Baird's life, and indeed broader Belfast life, was the city's shipyards of Harland and Wolfe and Workman and Clark. They were the reasons why many people, including James Baird, would move to Belfast. Yeah, they're hugely important in terms of the economy, 
and also in terms of the politics and the symbolism of the city, because you know building ships was a huge enterprise and made a big visual impact. You know you could actually see the 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 the, the product of your labour is rising up before you and towering above you. The growth of iron ship shipbuilding in Belfast from the 1860s in the, the, the two big yards that are what were called the big yard and the wee yard. The big yard is Harlan and Wolf, and the wee yard is Workman Clark. So even the wee yard was 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 big enough in itself. As Emmett explains, they were not just places of work, but they also had immense political, cultural and social symbolism in the city as well. The shipyards are seen very much as a kind of buckle in the belt linking you know, the North with, with Britain. And they very much encapsulated that economic link be- between the North of Ireland and, and Britain, because, of course, the growth of Iron shipbuilding in Belfast was very much dependent on the growth of the British merchant and uh, Navy and the Royal Navy too. While they brought jobs and wealth to Belfast, the shipyards were notorious for sectarian divisions and violence between workers. The workforce was largely Protestant, most of whom were avowed Unionists, but there were a small minority of Catholics in the yards as well, who were targeted from time to time by their co-workers. They also acquired this notorious reputation for uh, for sectarianism. That the shipyard men saw themselves as the, the shock troops of loyalism. So during the times of political crisis, and indeed at other times as well, you had expulsions of, of Catholic workers. And in 1912, 1920, Protestant workers too from, from the shipyard. So the Catholics in the shipyard, they really looked on as sort of political hostages. And that if, you know, if, if things got too, too difficult for, for, for unionism, if they came under too much of a threat, then the response was the nuclear option, as it were, was to expel Catholics from, from the shipyard. Now, James Beard arrived in Belfast around the early 1890s and found work in the tense workplace that was the Harland and Wolfe shipyard. He became an apprentice uh, boilermaker in Harland and Wolf in the 1890s. Now, it's a bit unusual for the son of a poor tenant farmer to suddenly pop up, you know, as an apprentice in the shipyards, because usually in the shipyards, jobs are passed on from father to son and it would have been a stiff apprenticeship fee. But Harland and Wolf were expanding into marine engineering in the 1890s. So instead of just building ships and then buying in the boilers and the engines for the ships, they're starting to make the engines and the boilers themselves. So it would have been the very kind of high point of the Industrial Revolution in Belfast at that time. So maybe that created opportunities for people coming in from the countryside to, to get jobs in Harlan and Wolf. James, he served his apprenticeship there, probably starting in 1893 and probably finishing about 1898. Although a Protestant, Baird would not get involved in unionist politics, but instead was orientated towards socialism and the trade union movement. Yeah, Beard, as soon as he finishes his apprenticeship, you know, he's admitted into the Boilermakers Union, which is an, an ancient sort of and venerable craft union in Britain, you know, where the members address each other as worthy brother and so on. He serves then as a branch secretary of the union, not full-time, but, you know, part-timer. But he kind of labours away there in obscurity as a, a dutiful branch secretary of his union. Clearly, he's interested in the wider politics. He does go to... Um, some meetings at the annual conferences of the, the British Labour Party as a union delegate. He gets involved for a time with Belfast Trades Council and Belfast Labour politics. In the years before the First World War, James Beard was not a prominent figure in Belfast. 
However, in these years, political tensions were on the rise. It appeared that Home Rule, the demand of nationalists in Ireland for decades, was about to be introduced. Now, this outraged Unionists and would lead to the expulsion of Catholics and Protestants, people described as rotten prods, from the shipyards in 1912. James Beard was not targeted, but in its aftermath, he was a member of a delegation who protested these actions. Well, he, he is part of the delegation to the RUC commander in Belfast trying to deal with the expulsions of workers. So clearly he's, he's not targeted in 1912, but he is making representations on behalf of those who are targeted. It was becoming clear that James Baird did not align with the majority of his Protestant co-workers in the shipyards in their support for unionism. I asked Emmett, though, where he fitted in politically in Ireland at the time. If he wasn't a unionist, did this make him a nationalist? As Emmett now explains, James Baird was first and foremost a socialist. Yeah, I don't think he was a nationalist first and foremost. I think he was a socialist first and foremost. But he was certainly anti-partition, which a lot of trade union activists were because they believed that it would lead to the creation of an orange state in the north and that would divide workers along sectarian lines. So that was a common position among Labour people at that time. I suppose the logic of that leads him to an increasingly kind of nationalist position. He certainly, he wrote at one point that he'd been um, a socialist and a home ruler on Queen's Island, Belfast, site of Harland and Wolf shipyard from 1893. So he was, he was clearly some kind of a home ruler, some kind of a nationalist, but I don't think he would have been an out and out Republican by any means. He didn't foreground that, you know, the, the, the socialism came first, but I think he, he certainly regarded himself as, as, as Irish. He was anti-partition because it would divide workers. And he believed that, you know, if the pursuit of socialism led workers in the north to closer unity with workers in the south, well, they should go down that road and prioritise socialism. It was only in the final stages of the First World War that James Baird emerged as a prominent figure in Belfast, as Emmett now explains. But he really comes to some kind of prominence in the summer of 1918 as leader of the Charter Hours movement. By August of 1918, it looks as if, as if um, excuse me, Germany is going to lose the war. But most people thought Germany could hold out for about maybe another year. But clearly the war is coming to an end and is expected then to be some kind of recession, maybe a glut of ships after the war. So the, you get the rank and file in the engineering industry starting the Charter Hours movement. Uh, in anticipation of that. And Baird leads the movement in, in Belfast. So he, he becomes quite prominent then. He's, he's, a, he's a member of the Independent Labour Party, the kind of left-wing ginger group within the British Labour Party. He's a speaker at the May Day Parades, the big May Day Parades in Belfast in 1919 and 1920. He's elected then as a councillor to Belfast Corporation in January of 1920. On the City Council, he earned the nickname Dungaree Baird, because on one occasion he had to wear his work clothes to a council meeting, which outraged some of the more conservative press in the city. He got the Ernest Subriquet dungaree beard because he, he had to go to a meeting of the corporation and he which was held during the day. He, he, he requested that meetings be held in the evening to facilitate councillors who are full-time workers and the, the corporation refused this. So on one occasion he turned up for a meeting of the corporation in his dungarees, his working clothes, and the Belfast newsletter was outraged by this and, and kept referring to him as Dungaree Baird. So that name kind of stuck. Having identified himself as a radical, 
James Baird found himself in a vulnerable position when the War of Independence broke out in 1919. Although the conflict only spread to Belfast in the summer of 1920, the intensity of the violence that engulfed the city would soon eclipse the war elsewhere. This would begin with extreme violence in the shipyards where James Baird worked when thousands of workers were expelled. These not only included Catholics, but also a number of what were termed rotten prods, including James Baird. Emmett now explains the broader course of events that led to the extreme violence in the shipyards in the summer of 1920. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, you've got, you've got two developments there that I think are kind of related. First of all, you had the, the radicalization of, of Belfast. I mean, most of you know Europe, moves to the left very much uh, 1919-1920. A lot of places in Europe had their two red years, as they were called, 1919-1920. In Belfast, the two red years stretched from about the summer of 1918 to uh, to, to July of of 1920. And they begin with the short hours movement in the engineering industry in which Beard is very much involved. And then, of course, you have the big May Day parades of 1919-1920 uh, and the Labour does very well in the local elections in January of, of 1920 and you get 12 Labour councillors elected to the corporation, 12 out of 60, and Labour becomes the official opposition in the corporation. Now at the same time of course you've got the National Revolution in Ireland, that starts, the you know, the IRA violence starts to spread to the north in 1920 and you have this fear among unionists that the the labour unrest and the national unrest will coalesce. So the two are seen as very much interrelated threats. But you, you had this tr- you know, tradition of expulsions in times of severe crisis during each of the three home rule crises, 1886, 1893, 1912, you had expulsions from the shipyards. And as Catholics were expelled in 1886 and 1893, but there were some Protestants who were expelled as well because they were seen as rotten prods in 1912 and they would have been if if you were seen to be a a labor activist you were presumed to be anti-partition which indeed most labor activists were so therefore you're regarded as anti-unionist and as as a threat so that happens again then in july of, of 1920 and there are people you know who kind of say that the 1920 expulsions were the result of some specific events like the, you had the uh, the killing of an REC commander in Cork some weeks earlier, and they say that you know their response to that. But I I, I don't don't accept that argument. You know it was too coincidental. It's clear that unionists were talking about another round of expulsions in the early months of of 1920. Sir Edward Carson makes a remarkable speech on the 12th of July. The, the fields as they were as they were called on the 12th of July, where he's uh, speaking at Finity, I think. <laughs> 
he singles out labor as the the enemy within as a more insidious enemy than the republican movement and he's saying you know that we have to get rid of these people i think he was sending a very clear signal to to loyalist workers you know that you need to take action against the the labor activists you know and obviously that the shipyard is is the place to begin so 21st of July 1920 then you have the start of this round of expulsions and it spreads beyond the shipyards even spreads to hotels and the railways and so on so at, at least 8,000 workers are expelled and possibly up to 20,000 left their jobs because of course you had people who who felt they were under threat they might not have been directly you know told to get out but they felt intimidated in, in the climate of the time and then you you get you get a reaction to that on the part of the IRA and some Hibernian elements in Belfast. They, they throw bombs onto the trams carrying shipyard workers. That leads to riots. And you've got a kind of civil war, or what some people would call a pogrom in Belfast, for over the next uh, t- two years. Having emerged as a left-wing leader in Belfast, it was somewhat inevitable that James Baird himself would be targeted in the shipyard expulsions. We don't know exactly, you know, how he was expelled, whether somebody came up to him with a sledgehammer and said, Baird, get out or whatever, which is, you know, what happened to, to a lot of workers. We do know generally what, what happened uh, and that you had gangs of men touring the shipyards, telling people to get out and, you know, literally swinging sledgehammers. And, you know, they, 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 obviously people had to leave in a hurry because in many cases, and Baird raises this point, they left their tools behind them. And a set of tools for, for a caulker, as Baird was, would cost up to £5. So that would have been, you know, over a week's wages at that time. But we know that Baird was ejected and very quickly then he gets involved with the Expelled Workers Relief Committee. There were a number of these committees that were set up immediately following the expulsions. And their job was to, well, to plead for relief because people were, you know, unemployed and now, you know, potentially destitute but also to try and plead with the British trade union movement to put pressure on the unions in Belfast to try and get the men their jobs back. So Baird goes on a kind of an odyssey around England mainly, and then to Dublin later on, trying to uh, make the case to trade unionists to, to, to rally support, to put pressure on the employers in Belfast to get workers their jobs back. Now this failed and he would spend the following three years in poverty in Belfast. Baird, it's not entirely clear how he kind of survives in, in Belfast. So he, he does seem, seem to have got the job with the National Sailors and Firemen's Union as a, as a secretary. And presumably that paid him some money, though he also talks about living as a pauper in Belfast, 1920, 21, 22. With no hope of ever being re-employed in his own trade in the shipyards, James Baird began looking for work in the other area of life where he had excelled, that as a labour organiser. As Emmett now explains, he would write to the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union looking for a position. This would see him play a pivotal role in one of the largest labour disputes in the early years of the Irish Free State. He, he writes to the Transport Union in 1923 looking for a job and they say, well, look, you know, times are difficult and we're actually, we're in a recession now and we're laying off workers, you know, union workers, not taking them on. And yet within a few months later, he is taken on as an organiser, which is a pretty good job with, with the union. Now, you had a big expansion of trade union membership in agriculture, 1917 to 1920, 2021. 
And it was boom time in agriculture in the war years and just after. But then the boom leads to a slump in 1921 and farmers are pushing for wage cuts. So you two two big strikes in Waterford against wage cuts in 1922 and 1923. And Baird is now, uh, he, he's appointed as an organiser for the Southeast. So he has a kind of roving remit. He bases himself in, in Bagnallstown and Carlow for a time because I think his wife's people had, had relatives there. But uh, by 1923, he's very much involved with the big strike in Waterford, which begins in the, f- the 15th of May, 1923. It involves about 1,500 farm labourers, and they're striking against the wage cut. And Baird, as the union organiser, in effect, he becomes kind of leader of the, the strike. The strike continues from May until December of 1923, when the, the union is, is sort of, it's been bled white, really, by, by strikes, particularly that in Waterford. There's no way of winning this strike, so they just cut off strike pay and say, that's it, that's the end of it. Baird then continues as an organiser in the southeast for another six months or so, but by June, he, he moves back to, to Belfast and uh, he lives there with his family until 1927. Back in Belfast, Baird had few friends. His actions in the early 1920s had not been forgotten, and in particular, one letter he had written in 1921 was not fondly remembered. When he appeals to the Trade Union Congress in Britain in 1921, he makes a speech there. By this stage, he's completely alienated from Belfast, and he's saying that they should put a barbed wire fence around Belfast and refuse to trade with it until they allow back the expelled workers. And this gets a lot of coverage in the in the, the newsletter and the Belfast Telegraph. You know, he, he becomes a marked man. He's, he's, he's vilified because of this. So he would have been rather persona non grata in Belfast. So I, I'm not sure how he survived. His daughter, he had five daughters and one son, and two of his daughters became distinguished pianists. His eldest daughter, Nora, had, was, had, had a kind of thriving piano practice, piano teaching practice in Belfast at that time. And I think that might have helped the family to, to get by. His, his wife's people had, had relatives in Brisbane, Australia, and they were saying to him, look, you should come out to Australia. They said, it's a land of milk and honey. And eventually the Bairds did move out to Australia in 1927. Australia did not prove the new start he might have hoped it would be. As Emmett now explains, James Baird would spend his final years helping his wife in a boarding house she had established. I think he, he, he found it difficult to get work there because, of course, he's in his late 50s by this stage. What happened was that his, his wife set up a boarding house and he, he helped her out in running the, the, the boarding house. So that was that was how he got by. But it's interesting that if you look at the, the Australian census records, he still describes himself in the census as a boiler maker. And I think right. it must have gone hard with him that he wasn't able to to work and provide for his family. And, he you know, he, he'd sort of lost his job, lost his, his role in life in many ways. It was just uh, his, his wife was now the main breadwinner and he was just helping her out. As our discussion came towards an end, Emmett explained how he was drawn to research James Baird I first came across him when I was researching the, the farm strike in Waterford for 1923. And I was intrigued at how this guy from Belfast ends up leading farm workers in, in, in Waterford. And I remember one farm labourer saying to me, he said, and he was an admirer of Baird, but he said to him, he said to me, I, I'd say he was an orange man. And I was intrigued by that because, first of all, that there was a kind of a hesitancy about it. Because, I mean, it was refreshing in the 1970s when you know, the country was being torn apart by the, the violence and the sectarianism. And of course, people in the North would have known your seed breeding generation. There wouldn't have been any 
any doubt about where where you came from. But here was a guy who was saying, yeah, I'd say he was an Irishman, meaning really that he thought he was a Protestant. And it was kind of refreshing that um, there was this more relaxed attitude to the question of religion and politics and so on in the south of Ireland than there was in the north. But at the back of my mind was this idea of doing something on Beard. And I wanted to look at him, not because he was a rotten prod. He has been used by some nationalist historians as, as a kind of weapon against unionism. And I didn't want to explore that aspect of him. But I wanted to just find out what, what life was like for the labour activists, so many of whom were Protestants in Belfast in the early 20th century, and how they dealt with the constitutional question and the question of, of partition. You know, I reckon that maybe something like 15% of Belfast, the Belfast working class, Belfast Protestant working class would have been anti-partition, certainly in the judging by the the, uh, the local elections of 1920. And that, that tradition has, has just been forgotten about. And now when we talk about the two traditions, you know, there's this presumption that all Catholics are nationalists and all Protestants are unionists. And we forget that it was a much more fluid situation. And there was a third tradition, you know, there was a labour tradition in Belfast at that time. And I think we've forgotten the, the labour perspective, the labour outlook on the, the northern problem. I think the labour movement itself has forgotten about it, and unfortunately everything has sort of become collapsed into the the two communities, two traditions perspective. I'd like to thank Emmett for his time. You can find his book, Rotten Prod, The Unlikely Career of Dungaree Baird, in the links below. It's well worth a read. We only touched on some aspects of this remarkable story in the interview. You can also find links to my own upcoming book and the tour in the show notes as well. Now, I'll be back next week with a whole new episode, so don't forget to subscribe if this is the first time you're tuning into the show. Until then, Sloan. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.